The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Almighty Father, how good you are to give us your Son, a great Savior, who's come to earth, was crowned with thorns, and lifted up on a tree. And now has been raised and is enthroned in the heavenlies. And he reigns. You are good to give him to us. Good to give him to us in both of those ways. As a humble and meek Savior, the wisdom and the power of God to redeem. And as a mighty ruler the strength and the might, the wisdom of God to control, to reign over, to rule. We say thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you for it. And I pray, Lord, that today you would help us, your people, to understand something of both sides of that equation, but particularly of the latter, of the reigning Christ as he's presented to us in this text. Would you help us, Holy Spirit, help us. Would you move through here now and help us. Help us to understand words spoken and images relayed to us. Help us to understand them so that we we see what you're saying. And then help us to receive it so that we we take it in and, and love it and find it sweet. Lord, would you remove, as has already been mentioned, would you remove any sin barriers that exist in the room? Would you remove distraction, fatigue in a day like this? We've all lost some sleep, and I pray, keep us from fatigue. Spirit of God, have your way here in this room and lift up the Son of God in our eyes for our good and for his glory and for the glory of God the Father who has made this all so Thank you, God. You're good and kind. And now teach us, shape us and grow us, I pray. And it is in Jesus' great name that remarkably we are able to pray. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to Revelation chapter 1. And as I mentioned last week, we'll be spending the next two months or so in this book of Revelation, the first three chapters of the book, with the intention of looking at the prophecies written to the seven churches in those three chapters. We want to grow as a church, and as we read about what Jesus says to those seven churches, and those churches were selected in part because of where they were geographically, but especially because they are representative of all churches and all issues that churches face, And so as we read these letters and learn from them, our our hope, our prayer is that we'll be conformed by them, we'll be shaped and made more like a church that Jesus means us to be. That's, That's our hope, that's our focus. And last week we looked at the first eight verses of this book, finding in that passage the the basic theme of the book of Revelation. 
different than modern-day apocalyptic works, and that word apocalypse is just the word that we have translated revelation here, different than modern-day apocalyptic works, which, which pretty commonly shape all of humanity against some outside great evil like a, a plague or something like that, and all of humanity is going to fight against this thing but ultimately perish. Different than that, older apocalyptic works, of which this book of Revelation is one, had a small subset of people, in this case the church, facing a world that is hostile against it. And the message is to the small subset, the church, take heart. Your God is mighty and he's going to come because he loves you. He's going to come and save you, protect you, deliver you. That's what we're looking at here. We saw that fleshed out for us last week with a God who is sovereign over all things and loves his people. And as we move to verses 9 and following, we don't, we don't really leave those themes, we just kind of turn them a little bit. Because in particular, in particular we, le- we turn to look at Jesus this week. Last week the emphasis was on God the Father, and this week we're more leaning on God the Son, Christ. The deity of Christ shines in today's passage. The equality of the being of God the Son with the being of God the Father. This, this book, the whole book, is tremendously Trinitarian. It, this book makes very clear that the one God who is, is in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. One God in three persons. God the Father and God the Son are both, along with God the Spirit, all fully God in their being. They have different roles in relation to creation, but all fully God. And today the text will deliver to us the sovereign, divine Christ and connect him to the church. That's what we're going to look at. But before I read that, I need to say something about imagery and how we should think about it and understand it because this passage today introduces to us the first big chunk of imagery. And really what I'm going to say now could apply to the whole rest of the book. We need to understand something when we come across imagery. This is a letter written to first century Christians. And they did not receive it and say, what in the world is he talking about? They received it and they understood it. They understood it. Because it uses imagery from the very water in which they swim. They get it. It's pulling things out of their culture and particularly out of the Old Testament and expressing ideas, concepts in that imagery that they understand. So if we're going to understand it properly ourselves, we are not allowed to, not allowed to, not is it unwise, not allowed to take the imagery and put our modern day meanings on it. That's wrong. We have to go back and find out what did the imagery mean to the people who first received it? What message did that communicate to them? And that message is what we take to the modern day. It's important. And, and a second point, just about imagery. It's in some ways a little bit like poetry. It's a different way of expressing something in a way that, that catches you. And if you have to explain it all, it loses some of the punch. I have to explain some of these things here. And we're going to walk through it and I'll explain this image and that image and this image because we don't naturally get them because we don't swim in that water. But I hope to. I'm praying that God will, will not make it so that it loses all of its punch and just becomes kind of a recitation of facts. 
If that's all we wanted, we could just have it in, in plain sentences. Skip the imagery. There's an image presented here. And it's meant to strike you. This is Jesus in a very remarkable way. Shown. Revealed. So we need God's help to, to see him like he's trying to present himself in all of his magnificence here. It's a marvelous Jesus. So let me read it now, and then we'll work through a couple of a couple three observations. This is Revelation chapter one, verses nine to the end. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The word of the Lord. I'm going to approach this by making three observations, all leading into this one main point. Here's my main objective for this morning, to communicate our King in our midst enables us to faithfully endure. That's the point. Our king in our midst enables us to faithfully endure. And I'm just going to break that into, into three separate observations. First two slightly longer than the third one. So here's the first one. What we the church are called to be about while we are here on earth. My first point, the church is called to faithfulness in this time of tribulation. The church is called to faithfulness in this time of tribulation. 
shows up right away in verse 9, and really it appears in every one of the letters that follow in chapters 2 and 3. But in verse 9, it's in summary form, John writing, I, John, your partner and your brother, partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. There it is right there. So let's unpack that. John's an apostle. He's an eyewitness of Jesus. And on the other hand, he's just one of us. He says, I'm your brother. I'm your partner. And the word there is, is from the word koinonia, which is what we name our Tuesday morning women's ministry. And so a lot of you have some basic idea what he's, what he's saying there. It's, it's a fellowshipping and a sharing. I am a co-fellowshipper. I am a co-partaker with you. I share in something together with you, the church here, and across the ages with, with all of us, the church. Which is to say, I'm a part of something with you that's normal. If he were to say something like, I'm a partner with you in the work, we would, we would know that this, we're with him, we're about that, but then you might ask, what is it? What are we sharing in? Well, in the tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance. Three things. We are sharers together in the tribulation. Which I imagine for a number of us, particularly in the book of Revelation and end times thing, carries a lot of freight. That word carries a lot of freight in your mind. And let me just plead with you, drop the freight. Don't carry all that along. The, the word is actually not meant to be so theologically loaded. It's a plain word that means affliction and trouble. And John can say it right here at the beginning without elaborating on it because he knows that Christians in the church will right away know what he means. They'll get it. We should get this. Paul traveled around teaching, for instance, which means the church constantly heard from its very beginning what he taught to the very earliest churches in places like Acts 14.22, through many tribulations, same word, you must enter the kingdom of God, same word. Two of these three words right there to very early churches, book of Acts. What he means is life lived, he's talking to churches, Christians, life lived right here, right now, once you've come into the kingdom of God and are moving towards the fullness of the kingdom of God that's coming, all of that is going to be a life of trouble, affliction, from start to finish. We live in a world that is it at odds with the kingdom that we just became citizens of. There's going to be a clashing. Paul taught that to Christians right now. Jesus taught that. And John himself recorded it in John 16, verse 33. In this world you will have tribulation, he said. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Right now, you will have tribulation. You're part of this kingdom that is at odds. That We have are two kingdoms in conflict, as Chuck Colson wrote some time back. There's a, a conflict, and we talked about it in 1 Corinthians 16. We are at war here. Not against flesh and blood. There's a spiritual animosity between these two kingdoms. We are a part of it. That's the way it is. Tribulation will result. Which means what for us? Well, properly understood, 
This tribulation is hardship because of the kingdom. Or as John expresses it for himself, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John's an apostle. In his life, he's holding faithfully to, to the word of God, what God has said, what God, what God teaches, what God values. He holds to that. And what Jesus said, his testimony, what Jesus said about himself, John walks around saying, there's one way to heaven. Jesus, he said so. God has come in flesh, Jesus. He testified to it. And he proved it at the cross by dying and rising again. I I swear to it, I will not let go of it. He held to that. And because of that, that's why he's on Patmos, exiled to this island 20-some miles off the coast. Get out of here, they said to him. Tribulation because of the kingdom. Because of his faithfulness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Which could mean, and for some of us here in this room, has meant physical hardship and violence. Some of us in the room here have experienced physical tribulation and violence, for instance, at the hands of Muslims in Sudan. That's true for some of the people in this room or some people who are often in this room but perhaps aren't here at the moment. Now, I know that all the fighting in in Sudan is not all because of genuine Christian faith. There's politics involved there too. But a good bit of it's because Muslims see people holding on to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus and say, we do not like that, and they attack them. We here in the Western world, often we read about that in the papers and we think, man, that's tough, and and voice of the martyrs write us about something. It's in this room. It's real. Some have experienced it. Some may experience it. More commonly, though, in in this country, it's, it's not like that. Commonly, it's much more subtle. It looks like ridicule or shame or embarrassment, some discrimination at work or at school. Which is tribulation. Obviously, it's a step down, but it is tribulation. There's hardship in that. I used to think that it couldn't get any harder than it was in high school when kids would laugh at you for things until I got out of high school. It continues. And there is a certain bit of trouble with that. Affliction. Others of us here, though, you know the tribulation because there are members of your family, your spouses, your parents, kids, who do not love the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And the choices they have made grieve you. You walk in it every day, you're going to go home to it. Or maybe you won't go home to it because of those choices. And there's a tribulation that you face there because you have said, I must go one way, and that person, spouse, child, parent, 
I'm going a different way, and I do not like that. I will not yield to it. I will not follow it. I reject it. And there's a hardship there. Some of us are afflicted by the tribulation of ministry because you are out there, you're praying and you're sharing and you're working and talking to people and pleading with them, and all you encounter is hardness and rejection. And nothing seems to happen. Here's a kingdom that you're a part of, and people, maybe they don't punish you in some way, they just don't listen and they turn away. And there's a pain in that. Join all that to the, the, the war that's waged in your own heart. Have you thought about this? That you have two kingdoms even at war within you. You face temptation and struggle and sorrow over failures and frustration over the things you can't do and the things you shouldn't do but the things you kind of want to do and really seem attractive to you but you don't. There's a wrestling going on even in, inside of us because of the kingdom. That you are different but you also live in as an alien and a stranger in a whole different world that is constantly luring you and saying, come and taste and see that the world is good and that God is not. And you struggle with that every day. Another little piece of the affliction or the tribulation because you are in the kingdom. And that isn't the kingdom out there. These are all different degrees of affliction, different degrees or aspects of tribulation. One way or another, they leave us like... Second Peter talks about righteous Lot. If you read the Old Testament, Lot's not that great of a guy, but Second Peter describes him as righteous Lot. And it says, interestingly, that he is greatly distressed... His righteous soul tormented day after day as he lives amidst the fallenness all around him and has to resist it. Those words of distress, tribulation. In this world, you will have tribulation. And God calls us to patient endurance in the midst of it. The third element in verse 9. Faithfulness. Modeled by John in the text. He's in tribulation, but in verse 10 he's also in the spirit at worship. He's in tribulation. He's in the midst of being exiled. And at the same time, he is in the spirit at worship. Resting in God in joy, in communion with God the Spirit. Which if you stop and you think about this, that's what we want. You've got this, this tribulation. Maybe it's so far down the road as to be physical violence. Maybe it's somewhere back here just being the, the wrestling of your soul with your own sin. You've got this trouble, this affliction in life, and what you want, and what God wants, what He expects for us to be about, 
But what you want is to be at rest in that, to be patiently enduring. Not abandoning Him, but enduring. And patiently, not anxiously, not in angst, frustrated. Patiently endure. So are you? Is that you? And I ask you to be careful as you think about yourself. I'm not asking, are you patiently enduring in the midst of everything being great? Healthy, wealthy, and wise, not facing any particular temptation, not in conflict with anybody. Things are wonderful. Everybody can patiently endure that. That's not hard. I'm talking about amidst the tribulation, are you patiently enduring? Those two things. When you're, when you're facing a world that is hostile to you, when you're facing a temptation, a sorrow, are you patiently enduring at that point in those situations? You can be, and there's a clue when we look at the very end of that sentence. The patient endurance that is in Jesus. Get all three of those things. Tribulation, kingdom, patient endurance that are in Jesus. If you're going to have all three of those things, you've got to have Jesus also. Now, obviously, you can't get into the kingdom without Jesus. And Jesus is the reason you have the tribulation. But you need Jesus for the patient endurance also. That takes us to the second point. But before I go there, you have to say, there's something here I need to live in this world patiently enduring. How? Well, that moves us to the second one. It's my second point, which is, I'm going to put it in very familiar terms, but this is where the imager begins to come in, and it's very colorful. But expressed simply, the Lord Jesus is fully God, our sovereign king. The Lord Jesus is fully God, our sovereign king. He hears the voice in verse 11, which it says is like a trumpet, which is significant. Trumpets sound in the scriptures. Commonly, they sound in war contexts also, but they commonly sound in the Old Testament scripture in worship settings and to announce the coming of a king. In the New Testament, to announce the coming of the King Jesus. So he hears this trumpet sound which says, All rise and behold the King. That's how, that's how he hears it and that's how he presents it to us. So here is the King. And he turns and he sees, sees lampstands, we'll come to that in a bit, but mostly he sees Jesus. And as verse 17 says, when he sees him, he collapses as dead. He passes out. Think about that. John knew Jesus very well. He hung out with him for three years. Put his head on his chest at the Last Supper. He lived with him. He even was with him at the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus' plain, ordinary nature was kind of peeled away for a moment and some of the glory broke out. He even saw that bit of Jesus. So he was well acquainted with Jesus, but here he is overwhelmed such that he just 
passes out. We should be overwhelmed by this, but the reality is we're not going to be. That's the problem. All of this stuff, our great problem, and may God work so as to help you with this, our great problem is that we are way too familiar with Jesus. Way too familiar with God. Now, that might sound really odd, because isn't that the whole point, to become familiar and comfortable with Jesus? Yes, but familiarity so often, if it doesn't breed contempt, at least lightens weightiness. John knew him and encounters him in a way that floors him. I wish, I wish that God would do that with you here this morning. I'm a human being, I've got weak words, I'm gonna talk about this. Oh! This is so important that this Jesus would, would appear to you. We are, we are way too familiar with him. And so the, the in Jesus piece that's so critical for patient endurance, it, it's rendered, we're inoculated against it. It, it doesn't have the impact. We're, we're immune. We have in our minds gentle Jesus, meek and mild. The baby in the manger. Maybe even the lamb, silent, led to slaughter. And we have His mercy before us, and we have His tenderness before us, and His grace before us. If you read this passage as we will, what you see here is that that stuff's not here. That stuff's all true. Depending on how you think about it. It's true. But there's a particular way He's presented here. This book... Speaking in a context of Christians facing tribulation, and the tribulation gets worse throughout this book than what I was just describing, but facing tribulation in all of life, and then as it gets worse at the end, this book speaks to a people that says, let me tell you how to patiently endure, and what you need is Jesus. This Jesus, and the Jesus in this book rides a war horse. Through the winepress of the wrath of God up to the bridle in blood. It is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. We need that, and we also need this the awesome Jesus that causes you to pass out if you see him. May that Jesus come to you. Spirit of God, may you cause it, Jesus to come to your people. He is alarming and amazing, this one who is like a son of man, which throws us right back into Daniel 7. Much of this comes from Daniel 7 and Daniel 10. Throws us right back into Daniel 7, where there is a great ruler who comes on the clouds and receives authority from the Ancient of Days, God Almighty. And what Right there what's established is it will reference back to Daniel is the separation of God Almighty, the Ancient of Days, and the One. He sets it up at the beginning and then what the whole text does is it narrows the gap. Till at the end, just like John's Gospel, the Word and God close together. 
He closes off this gap by taking several of the very same terms used to refer to the Ancient of Days and applies them to this one. He conflates the two. This Jesus is not a servant here. He's a king. And starts off right away in his clothing. He's clothed in ruling type clothing. Not serving type clothing. A robe all the way to his waist with a golden sash around his chest. He's a ruler. And his hair on his head is white. White as the whitest things in the ancient world. Which is a term directly out of Daniel 7 that the Ancient of Days is described as. Takes that and puts that now on Jesus. He has the wisdom of God in him. That's what the the white hair is about, the imagery. is the wisdom of God on him as he rules. His flaming eyes. Fire carried the idea of intense purification, righteousness. He is holy and pure. His feet are refined, burnished bronze. Feet symbolizing in that culture the path of one's life, the walk. So here is a walk of refined power. Because the bronze is about armor. He is a path of refined power, which you hear again in his speech. Thundering water. You stand at the coast with, with rocks on the coast or at the bottom of Niagara Falls, you can't even hear yourself talk because it's so loud. That's his voice. Power. The kind of power. Have you ever been to Niagara? Ever been to a place like that? It makes you feel very small. Because you know if I stepped out into that, I'd be swept away and destroyed. It's awesome. And when he speaks, that's what it sounds like. Commanding. He holds the seven stars in his right hand, authority. And from his mouth comes a sword, a long sword. Not not a Roman short sword that was used for, for thrusting and piercing. This is the kind of sword, and you know from the different words, swung in battle to lop things off. His word lops things off. Judgment. comes out of his mouth because it's his word, and it comes from a face that shines like the sun in glory. So gather all that together. This is a master who is so brilliant that he can hardly be looked upon, but when he is looked upon, what you see is great wisdom and great authority as he holds things in his right hand and great power in his path and his walking and in his voice and tremendous holiness and purity in his eyes. He is the king, ruler. And John sees that, oh my God, I mean literally, oh my God, and the shock of it, oh my God. And Jesus awakens him and says, don't be afraid. Now, if you're on the wrong side of that, be very much afraid. 
Because the whole message of the book is that one is coming to settle things. You don't want to be on the wrong side of the settlement. So what he has in this book, and we touched on it last week, with the, the mourning and the wailing of all the tribes of the earth in, in seven, what he has in this book is, is a very, very heavy, sober warning that also comes with a pleading because this is not quite yet. He hasn't come yet. And so now he just currently pleads and says, you come to me. Come onto the right side of this settlement. Come to me and trust me, I will deliver you. That's why I died. And that's why I rose, as he mentions. He says, don't be afraid. And then he closes the gap even further between God the Father and God the Son. I am the first and the last. Which is just like verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Throughout the book, these terms come up every now and then, and and Jesus finally in 22.13 throws, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, throws them all together. The Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. I'm the frame within which everything exists. I'm the sheet thrown out that falls over everything. I am in control. Me. Who I thought God the Father was. Yeah. And God the Son. Both. I am the living one. An extremely common name of, of God in the Old Testament. Contrary to all the idols that aren't alive, God is the living one. So says Jesus of himself. I died and I rose again. I live forever and ever and ever. And I hold the keys. Not just to this life. I'm not just in charge of this life. I hold the keys to death and the place of the dead. He is in charge. This is one of those, one of those ways that to spell it all out kind of loses some of the impact, but he is in charge. He is the ruler. God, fully God. This, and this is far more than just a nice lesson on Christology. He's presenting this in a very deliberate way. He tells John to be sure to write this down and to pass it on to the churches because he wants them to know something. This is who I am. So church... He says, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Who is the one in whom we are to patiently endure? This one. This Jesus who is in charge. Language fails me other than just to say, He's the King. He's the boss. He's the ruler. Who can stand against Him? Who can thwart His will? Who can destroy that which He protects? Nothing and nobody. So rest in Him. 
because that which he protects, that which is precious to him, is you as people. That takes us to the third point. Final point ties it all together. I said it's a little more on the brief side, but we have what we're called to do, and then the who Jesus is here. And the last point, very simply, he is here. That's it. He is here. Oh, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I don't think you do. Now, often I say something like that, and, and somebody at the door in the hallway or next week says, Steve, you accuse me of things that aren't true of me. I do too know he's here. Okay. No, you don't. Maybe you are infinitely more spiritually mature than I am. I forget this all the time. All the time. He's here. John turns in verse 12 and he sees primarily Jesus, but he sees Jesus in a context. He's standing amidst the lampstands. Stands on which lamps, and this is a reference, the Old Testament again, where God shines out of lamps into the world. Lamps stand on, on these stands to, to illumine. And he tells us in verse 20 that that's the church. And Jesus is in the midst of the church all around. And what's he holding in his right hand? Stars, which he says, are angels, which what exactly that means is a little bit disputed, but what isn't disputed, I, I think they are literal angels, angelic beings, but what's beyond dispute is that the angels repeatedly, all throughout the letters, represent the church. Such that when he speaks to an angel, he means, I'm talking to the whole church. Angel represent is representative before God of the church. He holds the angels in his right hand, he holds the churches in his right hand, and he's standing amidst another symbol for the churches. He is here. Right here. And we are all right here. This one. God Almighty. Full of wisdom and power and purity. With thunderous power shining in immense glory. If we looked on Him, we would pass out as though dead. Is here. Which should bring great comfort and sober warning. The warning part, because it's a reminder that we are not in charge. We run our lives and we run the church as if it's ours. It isn't. John, put yourself in his... There's not a bone in John's body from what would, would think like, well, that's nice for you, I'm going to do whatever I want. 
Not a bone in his body would think like that. But we think like that all the time. Proof you don't think he's here. Maybe some of us, and I mean some of us who are Christians and some of us who are not Christians, need to consider this and repent. If you're not a Christian, if you have not come to faith in Christ, this book ends with a plea. It's, it's laced throughout, but it ends with a plea. Come, 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 come. Don't wait till later. It's too late later. Come now. Come to find life from this one. He will save you. But if you, if you are a Christian, then I plead with you, look through your life and look for the places Sometimes it looks like shaking fist defiance, and sometimes it just looks like avoidance. But look for the places where you're following after another God, yourself. And repent. It's not your life. It's not your marriage. They aren't your kids. They aren't your parents. This isn't your church. The same, of course, is true for me. I don't mean that it's my church. I mean, it's, it's his church. So maybe there's some call there for us to repent. But what he primarily means to the church is fear not. Fear not. I am here. You don't have any problems. Little children. The term John would use. Little children. You don't have anything to fear. He's here. He's got it. Whatever it is. Really, he's got it. And he's got you. He holds you in his hand even amidst the tribulations that are yours in him. He's doing something in him. Paul said it is necessary that those tribulations be here. He's doing something in them. We could talk about that in the time. He's doing something. He has you amidst the tribulation. But he has you, and nothing can take you out of his hand. Whatever kind of friction or pain from life you're feeling, and, and sometime this week you will find yourself in tribulation of some sort. It, it'll happen. It'll come up. Tribulation proper due to the fact that you're a citizen of the kingdom and in some way you're trying to live for the kingdom and running into the world. Or tribulation in your heart as you wrestle with sin. Temptation, struggle, your witness to a friend and they'll reject you. Something like that will come up. And his word to you is endure patiently in me, in it. And you can. Because of the in me piece. He has you. 
He's good to you. He is omnipotent. Omnipotent. He never leaves you and He never forsakes you. He never turns you over to destruction. So trust Him. He is here. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us this Jesus. There is, of course, a way that he is yet to come. And we long for that day. But he is here with us. He is here even dwelling in us, individually and among us, the church, and among his churches. And I thank you for that. It is your will not just to save us and leave us alone to struggle on, but your will to save us and to walk with us. So thank you for that. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here, particularly the ones facing tribulations. Would you encourage them and remind them and lift them up today on Wednesday and Friday? Give them great rest in you and great joy in you. Remind them that you have them, that you have everything that they face under control. Nothing can separate them from you and from your love for them. Remind them of that. Plead with them for their trust by showing them yourself. Thank you for your word and thank you for the church that you have made. Grow us and mature us by your word and come and get us, Father, Son, and Spirit, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.